That's just real life back there. It's welcome, welcome to church. If you are a part of a local church, you're going to get all of it. It's one of the reasons why I am grateful for Drew and the One You Ministry. Is because from the beginning, Drew has always had a burden to make sure that when he's discipling people, when they're making relationships on the college campus, that those, those students don't think the only way to do church is on the campus with the same people in the same season of life. So for years, One You, which is our college ministry at University of Maryland, has made it a point to make sure that when people are a part of One You, they become a part of a local church, most notably our church. And it's not about our church, but it's to prepare people for when they go back from college and they go to a church that they're not used to being around the same people and, and, and don't know how to relate and interact with people. You need to be in a church where the baby does not care at all about what anybody else is doing. It just cares about whatever it's doing. So thank you, Drew, and the One You staff and everyone who make it a point to make sure that, that students get a real experience, that campus ministry in and of itself is not the, the Christian experience in and of itself, but being a part of a church is. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets real. This is why I love our church, because we have a bunch of different people, different seasons of life, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, all of it, and we come together for one sole purpose, because we believe in Jesus. This is why we're here. This is what makes our church amazing. All right, it's been a few weeks, so let me do a previously at The Rock, a brief recap so we know where we are. We are jumping back into the supernatural storyline of the Bible series today. We took a couple of weeks off that we feel like were necessary for where we're at as a church to do some, to, to address some issues. But on December 18th is where I last preached. I did preach on the 25th and gave sort of a, uh, the supernatural storyline Christmas edition. But, but on the 18th is where we were in the actual series where we looked at what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And how does and why does Ephesians 5 use the marriage reality of therefore the two shall become one flesh, leave his father and mother? Why does Ephesians 5 say that that is related to Christ in the church? And so we spent some time unpacking that reality in Genesis Two. Well, to pick up where we left off, we now have to deal with another reality that is similar to the same chapter. Now, the Garden of Eden is one of the most iconic ideas that has ever come to mankind. Even if you disagree with the Bible, I know people who reject any notion of what we would consider biblical or God from the biblical Bible, but they still embrace, at least in their own minds, the mythological concept of the Garden of Eden. Many of us have seen book covers where you see these two really pale hands coming together that are supposed to represent Adam and Eve. Or you'll see that somehow a red apple even though the Bible says it was a fruit and not an apple, somehow this red apple becomes what tempted Eve. That's why apple pie is such a popular thing. <laughs> so we're the culture, if you talk about the Garden of Eden, almost anyone who has lived long enough to hear any stories will be able to say, yeah, I know what that's, I know where that is. I've heard of it, the Garden of Eden. But have you ever asked yourself, what is Eden? What is Eden? Remember, we know the Garden of Eden, which in our day and age, we would say the Garden in Eden. But Eden is not the Garden. The Garden is in Eden. So have you ever asked yourself, what then is Eden? If there's a garden in there, and the central story of the Bible 
is that garden. Everything goes back to what happened in that garden. All humanity goes back to that garden. If you want to find out why people are the way they are, why this happens, why that's happened, why there's evil in the world, all these things, we go back to that garden, but the garden is not Eden. It's in Eden. So what then is Eden? Well, one of the reasons this is important is because they have become one and the same, but Eden has been forgotten. The garden has not, but Eden, the garden in Eden. They're synonymous. They're synonymous. And you can overlook it. We do it all the time. Let me give you an example. Many of us, if someone says, hey, they're from New York, what's your immediate thought? New York City. Hey, where, where are you from? Bronx, Manhattan? You might try to act like you know something about New York. Oh, which one of the boroughs you from? Been to New York once. What borough are you from? When you hear New York, you immediately think New York City. But do you realize that New York City is like this and New York State is like this? That state is huge. If I asked you what's the capital of New York, many people would think New York City. No. It's way north. New York is a big state, but when you hear New York, you think New York City. When you hear Garden of Eden, you think Garden, but not Eden. So what then is Eden? And is there more to know about Eden other than a garden is there? Today we intend to find out. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 2 or your Bible app. I'm reading from the ESV translation. It will be on the screen. And if you're watching at home, you should be here. But if you couldn't be here, then the words of scriptures will come on the screen. This is church. We keep it real. Beginning in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land... And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was wearing, watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And, he, and he became, the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made up, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we have a description here of Eden and the garden. But we're trying to figure out, well, what is Eden? We know what the garden is. So we're going to make a couple observations today about Eden. And hopefully, they'll be helpful. First observation. Eden is assumed. It's assumed in the passage. Let's look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, the author of Genesis, which many of us believe to be Moses, he does not go into great detail about Eden. He just says that God planted a garden in Eden. So Eden is assumed. It's almost as if he knew that the Israelites that he's writing to would know what Eden was already. So that when God places a garden in Eden, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But it doesn't make sense. At least not to us. 5,000 years later, right? Now, we accept it as reality. But it's assumed in the scriptures that their original recipients, guess they knew what Eden was. Now, this could be due to the fact that God is clarifying the false narrative of supernatural beings that rebelled against them. If many of us know this, that the Bible is essentially a, a competitive 
clarification of reality. God let other supernatural beings influence civilizations, what we would call religions, <clears throat> Mesopotamian religions from thousands of years ago, had their own stories of the flood, of creation, who God is. And so when God finally writes his narrative, he says, okay, let me tell you what really happened. Let me tell you the real truth. So it could just be that they knew what Eden was because the word Eden was also used by Mesopotamian cultures and religions of that day. So it could be the Israelites already had an idea of what Eden was because cosmic powers of darkness have already put that into play. And remember, Israel, before they became God's people, had spent hundreds of years in Egypt. So they had their theology of the creation of the world. But it's still assumed in the narrative. Now, Eden could be assumed because it wasn't the priority of the narrative. The garden was, but not Eden. So it could be that. Well, let me tell you why there's a problem with assuming Eden. And we overlook it. And here's part of the problem. One of the biggest critiques of the Bible is that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are sharing two different creation accounts. It's one of the biggest critiques of the Bible. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are sharing two different creation accounts that rival each other. And I, I know personally of people who have walked away from Christianity or have discounted the Bible because it's too contradictory. Genesis 1 says God created the world in six days, and each day something happened. And then Genesis 2, it says, well, he created man when there was no bush on the field and nothing there, and then he creates man, and then creates this. And people are like, how is that possible? Because in Genesis 1, man was created on the sixth day. Genesis 2, but in Genesis 2, it looks like there's no bush on the field. He's created after that. There's a contradiction. Your Bible is a lie, and many people have walked away. People who have been theologians for decades have now said that we reject the Bible. I think it's because Eden has been overlooked. Now, I'm not going to walk through all the reasons why, but I just want to give you one, because the, the goal today isn't to show you that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two different things. But I will say this. In Genesis 1, God is describing the world he created for man. In Genesis 2, he's describing the relationship that he has with man. Man's closer. You see them communicating. You see them talking. You see how he did some of these things. But I would submit the locations are different. Genesis 1, he's talking, he creates the world. Genesis 2, they're in Eden, not earth. Let me give you one observation, and we're going to move on because that's not the point of today's message. But I would, I would love to one day do a message on this. <laughs> but y'all get mad at me already for breaking protocol, so I, ain't gonna, I don't want no problems. Genesis 2 is talking about Eden, not Earth. Let me make one observation. Listen to the difference in trees. In Genesis 1... Beginning in verse 29, here's what God says, apparently, to Adam and Eve. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Verse 30, and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So here God says, look, on the earth, every green plant is yours. Animals can eat from them. You can eat from them, all of it. It's yours. God is a vegan. No, somewhere, somehow, somebody's teaching that right now. And I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, whoever's teaching that. The Lord said, I declared all foods good. We eat meat today. Well, in Genesis 1, he says, you have every green plant for food. But this is what he says in Genesis 2, beginning at verse 15. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day of it you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here you have God created all these trees on earth, but in Eden there's restrictions. Genesis 2 was talking about a different location. God planted that garden, and then he put man in the garden, and then he started to make trees. It's not the same thing, but when you overlook Eden, you get to a point where you walk away from your faith. I could say so much more, but I am time. <laughs> if we make no other assumption about Eden, it's still in the Genesis narrative without definitive explanation, as if the ancient Near Eastern Jews knew what it meant. If we make no other assumption, we have to at least acknowledge that. But we will make another assumption about it. Second observation. So the first observation is Eden is assumed in the scriptures. Second observation. Eden is a different kind of water. Eden has a different kind of water. Let's look at verse 10 of Genesis 2. It says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and it became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx, stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the land of Cush. And the name of the third river was Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river, river is Euphrates. But it starts off by saying in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. This is a different kind of water. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Here's, how here's what we understand about water in Genesis 1. All right, we remember at the beginning that God is hovering over the waters, right? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters before creation begins, so water seems to already be there. We talked about that at the beginning of this series. You can find it on the internet. But here's what Genesis 1, verse 6 tells us. We're reading 6 through 10. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, the waters that were already there, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So essentially, God's taking the water and separating it, keeping some on the ground and bringing some up to the sky. This is what it's describing. I know expanse for many of you is a sci-fi show. Pay attention to the Bible, please. <laughs> All right, verse 8. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said that the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So in Genesis 1, the water that is there becomes twofold. Seas, and then he says heaven. Now we think of heaven as like the place where God, heavens just means sky atmosphere, right? So even though they look like clouds to us, they rain, right? And you know it, if you've ever ridden on a plane and you've gone through those clouds, you appreciate them differently depending on that turbulence. I've been on a plane where I thought, wow, I'm dying today. I told you the story. Me and this lady, she's every bit of 84 years old. She grabbed my hand, and I looked at her, and she looked at me like, I'm so sorry. I said, nah, hold it tighter. Let's do this together. We get ready to die. The lady that was over there was, oh, my gosh, oh, Jesus. And I'm sitting here like, all right, Lord, I'm just going to stand up and preach the gospel right now. I'm sitting here trying to figure it out. But then I thought, I had, my beard was big. I was like, they're going to think I'm a terror. I didn't know what was going on. I was like, I ain't, Lord, I'm not saying nothing. These people are in your hands. 
I know what I believe I'm dying. If I get up and yell out, they're going to be like, get him, get him. It's like, nah, I ain't. I'm not having that. I'm trying to preach the gospel to people, and they're accusing me of blowing the plane up, not doing it. So I said, Lord, you know my heart. You, you knew this was going to happen. What I don't do, you knew. Diane, let's squeeze until the Lord brings us home. Me and Diane was buddies after that trip. Talked to her yesterday. Now I'm just playing. So you got sea, you got water on the ground, water in heaven, right? So that water is, 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 but when we get to chapter two, it says the water flows out of Eden. God's not taking the water from the sea or the water from the atmosphere in the earth, but water flows out of Eden to water the garden. And that water is so significant that after it hits Eden, it splits into four rivers and, and circles around the known world. This is not water that God took from the ground or water he took from the sky, but water that came from Eden. This is a different kind of water. Third observation of why Eden is so important. The Lord intentionally planted it for humanity. He intentionally planted this. Listen, go back to Genesis 2, verse 5, or look up at the screen. You guys are lazy. All right. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord intentionally planted a garden in Eden. In Eden. Now, I ask the Bible a lot of questions. Here's a question I ask. Out of all the places that God could have put Adam and Eve, I mean, my goodness, he just created a whole planet for them. Just created a whole world of all these animals, all this stuff, and he said, have dominion over this, be fruitful, multiply the earth, subdue it, rule over it. This is what it means to be made in my image. You have this whole planet, but I'm going to create a garden in a place called Eden and put y'all here. I didn't put y'all in Cush, which biblically today would be Africa. I didn't put y'all over there in Assyria. I didn't put you, I put you right here in this place that I planted after giving you the whole planet. Out of all the places that God could have put Adam and Eve, why did he put them in Eden? In a garden. Hmm. All right, that's all the time we have for today. We want to. So here's the natural question you have to ask. What is Eden then? What is Eden? The dictionary of the Old Testament, Pentateuch, theologian J, uh, John Walton, he says this. This is his perspective. He says, we must first recognize the Garden of Eden was not, strictly speaking, a garden for humans, but was the garden of God. And he says, the garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary that is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found in later sanctuaries particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. 
<clears throat> so what he's saying is, this isn't a garden like you and I, like God doesn't have a green thumb, right? It's not like God planted a garden. And it's, <laughs> that's not what happened. He's saying this is something greater than just what you and I would consider a garden with some nice vegetables and perfect rows lined up, maybe an electric fence because of the squirrels and foxes. Some people need electric fences. When you, look, when you go out and look at them crops and you'd be like, man, they keep eating them. These deers keep eating them. You'll understand why people eat venison. You'll understand why people kill deer when they eat your garden. This is what he's saying is not the issue. That it's deeper than just a location for Adam and Eve to be. There are some other descriptions of Eden which are seen in passages like Isaiah 51.3. He says this, For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. So you see, in Isaiah 51, he equates Eden as the garden of the Lord, which makes sense because the Lord planted the garden. In Ezekiel 28, this is a rebuke of, many people would say, it's a rebuke of the king of, of Tyre, but many of us, which I would be one of those, think that God is speaking also to Satan, who is behind the human motivation for evil, not just talking to a human being. And some of the languages, there's no way this human being could have been what is described in this in Ezekiel 28. But in verse 13, Here's what God is saying to what I believe to be Satan. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. What is that? I can't wait to hear. That's one of the, I'm, I, don't, I don't know about y'all. One of my first questions to the Lord, like, Lord, what is carbuncle? What does that look like? I'm wild like that. <laughs> and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. So here this idea is God is telling Satan, you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were in my garden. So what is Eden? Well, the garden of Eden is the garden of God. But then Eden must be, hmm. Theologian John Walton's me Walton mentions that there's, that there's an archetypal sanctuary. This is relating to or denoting something original, right? It's, it's imitating something else. Or it's a reoccurring symbol or motif. To summarize briefly what he said is that in the garden, it's Yahweh and then humanity, y'all worship. That's just kind of what he says. This is important because creatures that are near God are supposed to worship God. So God plants a garden, his garden, and he puts mankind in the garden to be close to him. So biblically speaking, the garden of Eden becomes less of a place and more about its proximity to God. So we can't think of Eden and the Garden of Eden as some location. If you were to go on YouTube right now, which I did the other day, there are dozens of videos. Archaeologists have found the Garden of Eden. And then you watch a couple of them and they all say the same thing. Well, we're not sure if it's over here or if it's there or over here. But the clickbait got me. I wasted 22 minutes of my life, which I cannot recover. I was like, let me watch this just for the sermon and see what they're talking about. Each video. And the garden is somewhere. Let me get out of here, man. Once you say in the garden, well, we're not sure. I'm, I'm done. The algorithm kicked me out. They will try to find the location, but the Garden of Eden, biblically speaking, is less about where it is and about who it's near. It's about proximity to God. 
So if the garden is less of a place and about as close as to God, then Eden must be the presence of God and where God directly is. Plants a garden to the east of Eden. Still Eden. He plants a garden here and man has proximity, closeness to God. So is there a true biblical case that Eden is where the presence of God is? Maybe not. But verse 10 is the clue. In Genesis 2, it says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. I said it's a different water, right? I don't mean just different kinds of water like tap versus spring water, right? I mean it's different in both its function and it's what it's trying to accomplish and represent. So let's do a brief theology on water. Starting with Genesis 2.10, which we've looked at. Let's start here. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and it became four rivers. The name of the first river, Pihon, Havilah, uh, 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 all this stuff, right? We're going to keep going. I don't feel like repeating them names. <laughs> all right. Later on, I'm skipping some places because this is brief. But now we're going to go to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. This is a vision from the Lord where he takes Ezekiel into this amazing scene that describes how refreshing water is coming from the presence of the Lord to affect the world. Here's Ezekiel 47, 12 verses. Stay with me. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. We're going to talk about where everything is east later on another time. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out of the way to the north gate and led me around outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, water was trickling down out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be many fish. For this water goes there, and the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the, where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Engedium. It will, it, will, it will be a place of the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left with salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, these will grow all kinds of tree for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. So here you get this idea. Water coming from the presence of God able to supply never-ending life for the world. Let's keep going. John chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus 
was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She was missing the point. She was thinking, whatever water he's selling, (laughs) I would like a cup because then I won't be thirsty anymore. What a blessing that would be, because then I don't got to walk all the way over here to the well and dip this down and carry all this back for all these people. I can be like, I'm not thirsty. Get it yourself. (laughs) You know how women be. I don't want no trouble. I don't want no trouble. No trouble. Y'all just had a good prayer breakfast. Pray for your pastor. I don't want no trouble. Jesus is saying the living water, the water that sustains you and everyone else that's eternal, comes from me. The presence of God. He's connecting the theme of water coming from watering the earth. Lastly, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So here you have in Revelation 22 an almost identical scene as Genesis 2. Except now it's clear where the water's coming from. In Genesis 2, it said the water flowed out of Eden. You know why? Because God wasn't ready to reveal that yet. This is progressive revelation. Over time, he's going to reveal where that water's really coming from. And when you get to Jesus and then Revelation 22, you realize, oh, that's coming from God. It's not water that God created. This is water that God established. This is coming from him. And in Revelation 22, we see the tree of life is there. Back to the Garden of Eden. Yielding its fruit, and I love this part, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Let me tell you why that's an important line. Because God is saying all the suffering that all the people who have believed in me and every nation on this earth have experienced, I'm going to heal that. We will eat from this tree, and each time we do, it'll remind us of the grace and mercy of God and the suffering, the healing of the nations. He says we'll be there. And the water streets of gold. Remember in Genesis 2? It went around gold. 
You're there. Just like light from Genesis 1, day 4 will no longer be needed, the sun will no longer be needed because the sun will be our light. Water will not come from anywhere but Christ himself. So Christ is telling her in John 4, you believe in me, you'll start drinking from this water. And this water is going to well up in you. It means you're going to want to honor God and have the conviction to honor the Lord. Every genuine Christian in this room, despite whatever circumstances you're experiencing, has drunk from that water. It's why when you struggle with the things that God allows, you're still here. It's why. You'll think, man, I'm not doing a good job. I'm not. I'm struggling. But you're here. I'm not praying every day, but you pray. I'm not reading as much, but you're reading. I'm struggling, but you're not running for the world because you've drank it from the water, the living water that comes from God, and we're moment to moment living that out. Not flawlessly, but to varying degrees, faithfully. The water that flows from Eden is coming from God himself because that is the presence of God. And he put mankind right beside him. Now, how does this connect to the supernatural storyline? How does this all this connect? I'll read again from the Dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch. It says, this association between ancient Near Eastern temples and spring waters is well attested. In fact, some temples in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and the Ugaritic myth of Baal were considered to have been founded upon springs likened to the primeval waters. Now, we talked about this earlier. Remember that all of those creation accounts have their God coming out of the water or out of the seas. Right? We talked about that before, so you'll have to go back and listen to that if you want more information on it. But he continues, he said, Thus the symbolic cosmic mountain, i.e. temple, stood upon the symbolic primeval waters. So essentially, the false narratives of cosmic superpower, powerful evil beings that created these narratives, that philosophies, what we would call other religions, there are similarities because, you see, they can't, create, they can only recreate. So they can't, they have to recreate, try to undo what God has done. So they come up with different ways of describing that, which is true. This is why all of them have a flood narrative. All of them have a flood narrative, but they're different depending on who the God is and what the purpose was. But they can't deny that that happened. They can only try to uh, 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 make us poison it. You see, they don't, they can't create. They can recreate. They tell lies, but we have the truth. Eden is the presence of God, and it's where heaven and earth meet. So the last question then is why did God put humanity in the garden? To worship him? Sure. But there's another reality. In the presence of God, at least as far as we know in the Bible, there are always beings, other beings around him. There are always other beings around God in the presence of God, in heaven and on earth. In heaven, there are other beings around him. We go to Ezekiel 1. Here's a scene of Ezekiel seeing, he's in the spirit world, seeing the presence of God. And here's what he says, beginning in chapter 1, verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. 
I think it's interesting, and we'll get to this later on in the series, that they have human likeness. Verse 9, their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. So here, the first thing he sees before he even sees God is these creatures in the presence of God. Isaiah 6, beginning of verse 1, he says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw that the Lord... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two covered his face, and with two covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here we have, in heaven, whenever you see God, there's always other beings with him. You go to Revelation. You see the 24 elders bow down. You go to Psalm 82, he's talking to the other, the divine pantheon, the other, there are always beings around God. He loves community. He loves fellowship. God himself has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Eden represents the place where heaven and earth meet. And then Adam and Eve get placed out of the garden. Humanity is placed out of the proximity, the direct presence of God. And so then God says, all right, let's come back and try this again. And he tells them in Exodus to build a tabernacle. And in this tabernacle, in the middle of it, there's going to be an ark, and I'm going to come into this ark. But he doesn't come there just to chill there. When he comes, the priests come into the ark. They come into the Holy of Holies, the room. And they stand there, and they meet with God. And then that doesn't work. And so God says, okay, let's try this again. Solomon builds an amazing temple with the presence of God represents the presence of God. But God has to punish the Jews for their sinfulness. And so Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. destroys that temple. So where is the place where heaven and earth will meet now? They rebuild the temple in Nehemiah and Ezra but even the people who remember the previous temple, it says they wept because they knew this looks nothing like what we had before. There's no presence of God. Where does heaven and earth meet? So God says, let me do it one more time. This time, I'm going to send my son. And so here comes Jesus. The fulfillment of heaven and earth coming together. But when Jesus comes, it's different because this time it's God who leaves Eden to come to the wilderness where man is. This time, God leaves Eden and is inviting humanity back to the place where they were taken away from. to drink from the living water, to eat from the trees. See, this final time, heaven and earth meet, and God says, when you believe in me, I'm going to put my spirit in you so you get a little bit of heaven inside of you. It's that spirit in us that gives us a desire and ability to obey God. It's the reason why when you struggle with the things that God allows in your life, you're still here. Heaven and earth meet perfectly and completely in Jesus. So much so that God says, when you believe in Jesus, if you will give your life to him and live your life for him, then you will experience some of that. And we get little tastes of that when we gather together like this. This is why this is important. You know, if you were to go to a concert, your favorite artist, and your front row, it would be crazy. 
every song, you'd be sweating your weave out. <laughs> we, we keep it real here for those of you that have them. Don't get mad at the people that got good hair. That's a different sermon. Envy, jealousy, different sermon. But if you watch it, it'd be amazing. Now, I could watch that same concert on TV, and I might get sice when I see a song. I'm like, oh, that's my joint. I'm rapping with it like I'm on stage. But I'm not there. It's a different experience. It's a different experience. The vibe, I'm watching the same thing, same song, but there's something about the vibe. There's something about the presence, being with the people. This is why we come to church, because church is a place where heaven and earth meet. It's the temporary reality for the eternal significance of where we're going. Eden is the residence of God, representing direct access to God. The source of living waters and the garden is his desire to see mankind right next to him. Why do you think Jesus came so that he can be right next to his people? And he gives us his spirit so he can be right next to his people. And he tells Paul, why are you, why are you uh, punishing me? Why are you attacking me? Paul says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Why would he say that? You died a couple months ago. Because Jesus is saying, when you attack my people, you're attacking me. I am with my people. We are functional gardens of Eden, sort of. Where we're right next to God. He wants people near him. This is why we say, be grown and own. Take ownership of your faith and stop making excuses for why you don't do the things you're supposed to do to honor the Lord. Now, all of us have struggles, no question, but many of us make a lot of excuses and you blame everyone but you. God has come, heaven and earth, to you and given you faith to be with him, to be close to him. But you have to be grown and owned. Stop making excuses for why you sin against the Lord. Who cares what happened to you? Everyone has struggles. Everyone's been hurt. Everyone's been offended. Everyone's been betrayed. Everyone's been sinned against, including Jesus. Stop making excuses. And if this isn't the place, find a place that is the place so you can be in the presence of God. Don't tell me where we're two or three are gathered. Yeah, but he died to establish a community of people that come together. So where two or three are gathered was God just saying, I'm there, but that's not the preference. The preference is when this gathers. This is the preference. God from the beginning has always wanted people near him. And many of us, through our excuses, distance ourselves. We're walking out of the garden, away from it. We're going to the east. You must be grown and take ownership of your faith. Because when you stand before God, if you do go to hell, you will not be able to blame me. You will not be able to blame your mentor, your boss, your spouse, your children. You won't. God says these words were here the whole time. You chose other things presuming on the grace that I'm giving. I'm pleading with you to stop. Stop making excuses for sinful attitudes and actions as if God is like, it's okay, fam, I see you. Yeah, grace is amazing and it will forgive us, but God is expecting us because we are in proximity to him more than any other people group in this world. Professing genuine Christians have close proximity to God. 
I think a lot of us are going to stand before God and people who are not growing and not persevering and not fighting and not conquering. You have to ask yourself this question. How is it that I have the spirit of the living God in me and I'm not growing? How is it that I have the spirit of the living God, according to the scriptures, in me, but I'm not growing? I'm not making progress. I'm not conquering. It could be that the spirit of the living God is not in you. And I would rather say it now so we can all gut check ourselves than you stand before him and it's too late. Stop making excuses. Be grown. Take ownership of your relationship with the Lord. Stop blaming, I don't like this worship song and I don't like this and I don't like that. I would hate for you to stand before God and him to be like, I don't like you. Take seriously. Because there is a supernatural battle happening. And the enemy wants your soul. He wants it. He wants it. And lastly, let me say this. The Bible equally warns us to take, make our calling and election sure. And then also says that those who, he, who know him, he'll keep to the end, okay? It's what we call perseverance of the saints in a particular and sort of reformed Calvinist doctrine. Perseverance of the saints. Those who belong to God will not pluck God out. God, no one will pluck them out of his hand. That's true. But the warning to make your calling and election sure is also true. Don't lean on one theology and ignore the other. They both are real. And we must both treat them like they're real. Eden is the presence of God. The garden is to put man in close proximity so heaven and earth can meet together in one place where God and man are together. That didn't work, so Jesus came and heaven and earth meet in Jesus. That did work. But now the question is, does it work for you? Does it work for you? I can't give you that. I can only mention it. Mike can't give you that. No one else can give you that but Jesus. In the garden, heaven and earth meet, and God always had other beings in his presence. So it wouldn't be that unusual then for another being to come in and be able to communicate. For Adam and Eve, it wouldn't have been like a shock to see another being come in and communicate because we could presumably at least say, well, this is where heaven and earth meet in the presence of God that they may have already seen other beings, but it wasn't important to the narrative until this one being comes into the garden in the form of a serpent that we know his name is Satan. And what happens there is something many of us have overlooked. And so I'll say this. We'll talk about it next week. Let's pray. Father, I don't warn or say anything to our church that is not for me. I also don't, I'm not Moses coming out of the mountain with two stone tablets like I've arrived. I need every warning to be grown and take ownership of my faith just like they do. I am not exempt because I'm up here saying it. I'm actually more accountable to you because I'm up here saying it. So never do I say anything that doesn't apply to me. And I have my own weaknesses, own areas where I've been playing around too long. But Lord, I ask that as we recognize the severity, while we're all excited and to some degrees blown away by certain connections that are being made of the supernatural storyline, at the end of the day, those things are not, are not going to be what saves us. They may be what encourages us or maybe lights a fire under us. But Father, many of us, many of us, maybe not all, but many of us could accurately say, we haven't taken ownership 
of certain things. And some of us are okay with that. We're actually comfortable with that. We're comfortable with casually having a casual relationship with you. I pray that you would help each of us because of the proximity from the beginning that you've placed mankind in your presence. You've given us that same proximity through your spirit once we believe in Jesus. I pray that by your grace that 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 reality of that proximity, that, that sort of Edenic sort of ideology that we have the proximity that Adam and Eve had. It's different, but it's real. I pray that that would help us to be grown and own, take ownership of our faith. And for some of us, we might be so distant, it seems dip too difficult. May we start small. Start small. You're a God of small beginnings and enormous grace. But Lord, please, starting with me, please prevent us from taking advantage and presuming on that grace. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. If you do not have uh, communion, please go to the back and grab it. If you have a question and you send it in late, we, we move on. Sometimes we'll see the questions come in after church. Like, hey, what is it? It's like, oh, man, sorry, man. I would have loved to answer this in person. But your thumbs got to be quicker. One of the beauties of us doing communion each week is that we're able to, in a small way, remember, remind ourselves of that proximity. You see, Jesus, what makes this unique is not, you know, I, we used to do this once a month. And I remember when I went to my friend's church and he said they do it every week. And I was like, man, I, y'all do it every week? And it almost felt like, hey, if we do it every week, it loses some sense of holiness or some and it was like, he was like, nah, we do it every week too. And so I was like, all right, you know, we'll try to see. I was like, I hope I don't get tired of it. Then I realized, like, man, well, how do we ever not do this from the beginning? Because this is one of the few things that Jesus says is speaking to people who are in proximity to him. When he did this with the disciples, they were in close proximity to him. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So to actually participate in this, you have to be in close proximity to the Lord, meaning you have to be a believer. You have to be a believer to participate in this because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we are remembering not just what he did, but what it means. Everyone knows that Jesus died, whether you believe in him or not. We don't celebrate remembering that he died. We celebrate what it means for all of us. You know, after Jesus' death, this is recorded in Mark's gospel. After Je- this, is the only, this is the only place, if I'm not mistaken, that has this, this brief narrative. But after Jesus dies, it says that the curtain that was in the Holy of Holies, so this curtain separated the presence of God in the ark, like where the presence of God was, the curtain was there, the high priest could only go there once a year, right? And behind the curtain, other people could be. But after Jesus died, it said the curtain was torn in two. Like God just basically said, all right, everyone now has close proximity to me that believes in me. It's not just the high priest once a year. It's everyone who believes in me every moment of every day. So this is a reminder of that proximity that we have, but also the responsibility that we have. Jesus didn't die 
so that the people who believe in him could make excuses for not pressing in. He died so that people who believe in him would be forgiven as they're pressing in. So, Lord, we today, we remember. We remember the proximity that we have to you. And it's important because we don't always feel that, Lord. If I evaluate how close I feel to you by how I feel, then I don't ever, almost ever, rarely do I ever feel close to you. But you also said that David was a man after your own heart. You said that at the beginning of, before he was king. You told Samuel that he's a man after your own heart. And yet David wrote many psalms crying out, saying, where are you, Lord? So even David, a man after your own heart, didn't always feel close to you or that you were close to him. So our feelings are irrelevant. The truth is what's relevant. And you have said that you are near to those whom you belong to and whom belong to you. So, Lord, we take this in memory, not just of what you've done, but of what it means to us and then what we do as a result of this for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's eat together. And the juice represents the same thing as the bread. The bread represents his body that was broken on the cross. The juice represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins that gave us proximity to him and the responsibility to live as such. Let's drink together. Father, we submit this to you. We are grateful for Eden. Eden is where the river flows. That's your presence. And that you put the garden, you planted it right to the east. You wanted humanity near you. And to this day, you still want humanity near you, with you. You told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. You didn't say he'll be in paradise. You said with me in paradise. You didn't promise him that he would be there. You promised he would be there with you. You want us in proximity. So, Lord, I beg of you that only you can do this in your spirit. Ignite in each of us a passion, an endless fascination with your word so that we would continue to be grown, to grow up in our faith, take ownership of it for your glory and for our good and for the good of our church. We need each other. We encourage each other to grow. May that be what defines the rock. Because we are defined by the rock. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.